You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing Black Muslim men's fashion in the United States and why it's important to consider fashion when thinking about religion. What are the unique features of Black Muslim men's fashion and how do clothing choices influence one's religious beliefs and actions? We will also discuss if the increased media, corporate, and retail attention on Muslims and clothing is a good thing. And we'll discuss how some Black Muslims are using clothing to make clear that they are central to Islam. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Kayla Wheeler, Assistant Professor of Gender and Diversity Studies at Xavier University. She specializes in Islam and fashion. You can find her newest article, Bowties, Beards, and Boo-Boos, Black Muslim Men's Fashion in the United States, in the upcoming special issue of The Revealer on Religion and Fashion, out this September at therevealer.org. Kayla, it's great to talk with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So I'm very excited to talk to you about your research on Black Muslims and fashion. And I'd actually like to start with a broad question before we hone in on some specifics, because I think some listeners may not have ever thought about religion and fashion together. So I'd love to hear from you since this is your expertise. Um, Why is fashion something that matters when thinking about religion or when we're trying to understand religion? Yeah, so when we think about fashion and just dress in particular, that's usually our first impression of someone. So we already have an idea of who a person is based on what they look like. And that has a really, really deep meaning when you're talking about different religious communities. Your dress can signal certain theological preferences. It can signal your age, your marital status. I think oftentimes we see fashion as just being so ordinary and mundane that it's not worth studying, but there's so many unique aspects of it. And it's not just what you're dressing in, but how is it being produced? What is the meaning behind both the production and the consumption? And I think just in general, fashion is something that unites everyone. Every society, for the most part, has some form of bodily adornment, whether it's wearing jewelry or styling their hair in a unique way. This is something that we can all relate to in some way or the other. Great, right. No, I yeah, I think this is part of why your work is so interesting because fashion and clothing and all of that matters. And exactly as you say, it can reveal quite a bit. And there are norms that are associated with fashion. Um, There are sort of cultural expectations of respectability that we all sort of live under, whether we're aware of it or not. So I really like that you're bringing uh, many of these issues to the forefront. So when we think about Islam and clothing specifically, one thing that you note in your uh, coming Revealer article is that most attention when thinking about Islam and clothing seems to go to the hijab or various forms of veiling for some Muslim women, and that many journalists as well as scholars have not turned much of their attention to Muslim men and clothing. So I'd love to hear why do you think that's been the case? Why have Muslim women gotten much more attention in this area? 
I think part of it has to do is just how we view women in general is the homes of culture. Culture rests on women's bodies. So we focus on what they're doing, even though we know that's not to be true at all. In terms of Muslim women in particular, I think this is just one example of Orientalism. So we have this understanding of what Islam is, and Islam is usually viewed through embodied experiences and something that covers your head, covers your body. Uh, for a Western gaze, that stands out, and it's something you need to investigate or uncover. And a lot of the ways that we talk about Muslim women's dress in particular ignores the diversity of experience that they have. We're not really interested in seeing Muslim women as human beings as people with rich understandings of themselves and their surroundings, they're objects for inquiry. And I think that's one reason why um, in the 80s and 90s and even getting into the 2000s, a lot of the scholarship and journalism around Muslim women in the hijab was unveiling Muslim women, seeing what they would look like without the hijab or get into their motivations. What's the one reason why you cover? And if you talk to Muslim women, they're going to give you different answers depending on the time of the day because it's such a complex and personal issue. And I think we as scholars try to have neat, tidy boxes so we can understand people, but in many ways that actually otherizes them. I would love then to pivot then since you've done some research and writing on Muslim men and, and clothing and fashion. And so the first piece of fashion that you address in your upcoming Revealer article about Black Muslim men's fashion is bow ties. And so could you explain for our listeners what the significance of bow ties is for some Black Muslim men? Yeah, so I'd have to go back to my childhood experiences living in Cleveland, driving down the street and seeing these men with these black or dark gray suits with bow ties, either handing out final call issues or bean pies. And that is something that is important not only to the Nation of Islam, the bow ties, but to many other black Muslim communities. It signals uh, their love of self. It signals their own form of respectability politics. But for some men, it also just signals their coolness. Um, There's a Mm. certain coolness that comes with black people, regardless of their religious identity. But for black Muslims, particularly in the nation of Islam, the bow tie is a signal of their membership in a particular organization, but also part of their worldview, understanding how black men and black people have historically been positioned in the United States and using their clothed bodies to push back some racist assumptions about black masculinity and black people in general. Right. So then clothing becomes, exactly as you said earlier, it sounds like it's signaling multiple different things, some of which is internal to the community, but then uh, some of it, it sounds like you're also saying is external uh, as well. And, and part of what you said made me think about what one wears, and maybe especially the repetition of wearing particular things, has the potential of influencing one's interior or their thoughts and actions. So is that, would you agree with that assessment that clothing can do that? And if so, can you explain how what one wears can shape you know, their interior, their character, their beliefs or actions? I think it definitely can shape how you view yourself. Um, For many people, clothing is a disciplining tool. It reminds you of the person that you aspire to be. It reminds not you, but the people looking at you. So I'll give myself as an example. 
I'm a young black woman. I'm teaching online now, but normally I teach in person. When I go into a classroom, people usually don't know that I'm a professor. Hmm. So I have to dress the part. I have to wear a suit, wear the heels. That's a reminder to them that, hey, this is what professors usually look like. But it also, it for me, it has me straighten up uh, my back a bit, speak with a bit more authority. So it's a way to communicate both to yourself and others. For Muslims, wearing certain clothing could be a way for them to connect um, with God. It could be a way for them to connect with their community members, but it could also be a way to remind them of certain proper actions and beliefs. So whether that's gender segregation, respect of other people, being humble, being modest um, in your speech as well as your actions. So it, it can have multiple understandings and influence multiple actions for Muslims and people of other religions. Great. No, I mean, that makes total sense, right? The idea that it can serve as a physical reminder of the way that you are trying to lead your daily life. So one thing that I also want to bring up from your article that I think uh, listeners may be curious to hear more about is that you address the idea that when we're talking about Black Muslims in particular, that at times black Muslims report not feeling as central to Islam or perhaps they feel not as authentic or viewed as authentic as Muslims of Arab descent or Arab Muslims, even though there are large numbers of black Muslims in the US and throughout the world. So I'm curious if you could explain why that idea persists and then also if there are ways that uh, black Muslim men are using clothing to push back against the ideas that they are not um, as authentic or as legitimate as other Muslims. So I think that comes from two areas. First, it comes through how non-Muslims choose to view Islam. The media plays a really, really big role in producing images that then become dominant of all marginalized people. And that has especially been the case with Muslims. So we know that the first Muslims in the United States were Africans, and the majority of them were enslaved Africans. And the people who played a dominant role in rebuilding Muslim communities in the 20th century were Black Muslims, primarily through the Moorish Science Temple of America, Darul Islam, and the Nation of Islam. And a lot of these Black Muslim organizations, they had politics that matched their beliefs. So they were committed to black empowerment and both economic and social empowerment. And that was a threat to the social order in the United States. So the media, as we know, is not necessarily neutral, played a big role in painting a negative image of black Muslims. And you can go back to Mike Wallace's and Louis Lomax's The Hate That Hate Produced, which was a documentary that debuted in 1959 and it painted the Nation of Islam as this hyper-violent, evil, anti-white organization that would lead to all of this death and destruction. And what they did is place black Muslims, a term that they actually created for members of the Nation of Islam, kind of on the side saying, you know, this is not a real religious organization. This is a political organization. Their beliefs are not authentic. Real Muslims do X, Y, and Z. And so, many non-Muslims embrace that understanding of what Islam was. Islam is an apolitical thing. It's just theology. When we know that politics and religion mix, and for many people, it's the same thing. 
On the flip side, you have Muslims themselves who have um, participated in anti-blackness. Part of that has to do with the racial hierarchy in the United States. It is not meant to allow for much collaboration between different people of color. And we see a lot of this happening where people are challenging different communities' authority beginning in the 1960s, when in 1965, we have the Immigration Reform Act, which ended the racist immigration quota system that had favored Western Europeans. So you had a large number of non-Black Muslims coming over to the United States, and many of those Muslims staying here long term instead of just working for a few years and going back home. So coming to big cities like Chicago and Detroit, they found that there were already established Muslim communities. Some decided to embrace those communities. Others saw this as a way to assert their own authority. Hmm. That's fascinating. And you narrate that history so well. I um, feel like that could be an entire different episode of the podcast that I would really be interested in hearing more about. But for now, I'm going to pivot us back to our conversation about Islam and fashion. And since fashion often has to do with trends, uh, I'd like to ask you how you see Black Muslim fashion extending beyond Black Muslim communities? Are there ways that uh, Black Muslims men's fashion is influencing people outside of their own communities? I would say probably the number one style is the Philly beard, which we see a lot in Philadelphia among Muslims and non-Muslims, but you also see it among celebrities like LeBron James. So the Philly beard is a bit different than other beards you might see. It's long, it's bushy, it's look luscious and luxurious. People spend a lot of time um, making sure that it looks good. And so that's something that comes from Islam, um, people believing that the Prophet Muhammad had a beard and wanting to follow his example. And then non-Muslims seeing it, thinking it looked cool, and then choosing to get a beard on their own. And I think that's good. It shows you how expansive Islam is in the United States. It shows the culture of influence, but it also shows how sometimes Black Muslim aesthetics are appropriated and not necessarily given the credit. Well, then, so, okay, so then let's broaden it even more in terms of influence and what's been going on the past several years. So, there's been an increased media and corporate retail attention on Islam and fashion with some multinational clothing companies featuring advertisements with veiled Muslim women. And I would love to hear what you make of this. Is this, um, you know, I think Tommy Hilfiger and some others had, you know, modest clothing lines to target uh, Muslim women. Is an H&M had a, an advertising campaign. Is this a good thing and representative of less Islamophobia or should we be skeptical? So I don't want to discount how for some Muslim women and Muslims in general, representation really matters. But I do think we have to be a bit cautious when we're celebrating these companies. This is a business decision from my perspective. And it's a very, very smart business decision because it's recognition how much global buying power Muslims have, especially in the Gulf region. But I think when we focus just strictly on representation, we don't leave much room for the messiness. So you look at H&M, Gap, and Banana Republic are other big kind of um, everyday stores that have started to advertise to Muslims and then also create modest clothing lines. Most of the, these 
fashion stores, the especially fast fashion stores, they are able to produce their clothing for such a cheap price because they rely on sweatshop labor. And many of those sweatshops are located in Muslim-majority countries. So you have brown women in the global south producing modest fashion. Given those complications, are there alternatives for people, if there are listeners who want to see or think or purchase clothing items that are not produced by places like H&M or Gap? Are there other alternatives that you might suggest they look or consider? One place that I think is really cool, one person in particular doing amazing work is Hoda Ketabi. And she's based in Chicago, and she has a clothing brand, and she ensures that the garments are produced ethically, ethically sourced, and that they are paid fair wages. I think another thing is to just support local Muslim businesses in your own communities. You'll often find them near mosques or on big cities, and you can go there. So Muslims have been involved in fashion before H&M and Gap and Tommy Hilfiger got involved, and this has especially been the case for black Muslims. You could go back to the Nation of Islam in the 1960s, having their own clothing factory and stores, both in Chicago and throughout the United States, and those things are still available. A lot of the fashion centers Muslim women, um, but there are stores that you can go to that cater to Muslim men who might want to have a blazer that's a bit longer that will stop at their thighs or at least cover their butts. At the same time, that's going to be a bit more expensive. Fast fashion is so popular because it's so cheap. So you really do have to weigh the cost-benefit analysis. Are you going to be able to afford something that might be hundreds of dollars more if it means supporting garment workers and supporting local businesses? Or are you going to take the easy way out and buy a whole bunch of cheap clothes? And I think Islam is, is not anti, it's anti-capitalist, but it allows for space for consumption, but ethical consumption. We have to remember the Prophet Muhammad was um, a businessman. He was married to a businesswoman who actually proposed to him. But for Muslims especially, it's recognizing that you need to be ethical in all of your decisions. And that includes how you buy your clothes, who you buy them from, and what you're wearing. Excellent. Thank you. That's very helpful and illuminating. So I would the final question I'd like to ask you today is um, you've written that one of your favorite hadiths is the following. Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. Will you explain, since you've said that that is one of your favorite hadiths, what that hadith means to you? For me, it means that it's an example that Islam truly is a religion of ease. There aren't any undue burdens that are put on Muslims. So there's a recognition that there's beauty, everything in the, in the world, and that's okay. So the first part of that hadith is actually the Prophet Muhammad saying that no one will enter paradise who has an Adam's weight of pride in his heart. And so a man responds to him, what if a man likes his clothes to look good and his shoes to look good? And so then the Prophet responds, Allah is beautiful and loves beauty. Pride means denying the truth and looking down on people. So for me, I see looking beautiful, dressing nice, that being a sign of worship. If Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty, then you are encouraged to look your best. Look your best in an ethical framework. So maybe you don't have 30 shirts that look exactly the same. Maybe you just have one that was ethically sourced, but you have an obligation to look good. 
And that has a very practical reasoning. For one, and we know this especially to be the case with Black Muslims like in the Nation of Islam, that's a great recruiting tool. That's a form of da'wah to show like, I'm a part of this religion. We love ourselves. We can be beautiful, but we can also be knowledgeable and we can be close to Allah. There's no disconnect there whatsoever. And to me, Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. Is That's just such a black perspective. If you just look at black style outside of Muslims or including Muslims, black people always show up and show out. Whether that's Easter or the first day of school, black people love to dress. And that is a form of resistance against white supremacy, our beauty politics, but it's also a celebration of black creativity and black cool. And you see that embodied in the black Muslim men that I present in my article. That's great. I really appreciate hearing you share all of that and and all of this fascinating information. So thank you for uh, your time with us today. I know you are working on a book on Black Muslims and fashion, and I'm sure many of our listeners will want to read it when it is available. So that is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Kayla Wheeler and our production editor, Anna Donch. Check out Dr. Wheeler's article, Bow Ties, Beards, and Boo-Boos, Black Muslim Men's fashion in the United States in the upcoming special issue of The Revealer on Religion and Fashion out this September at therevealer.org. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our seventh episode next month. Acclaimed author Catherine Stewart will be joining us to discuss Christian nationalists and the influence of religion within American politics as a lead up to the 2020 presidential election. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.